This is School Nursing Uncovered, a podcast for school nurses by school nurses. Brought to you by the NHS team behind the Chat Health Service, partnering with the school and the Public Health Nurses Association. So hello and welcome to School Nursing Uncovered. During this first series, we're going to uncover challenges and issues that affect children, young people and their families across the UK. We're going to explore topics such as mental health, vaping, safeguarding, gender identity, and importantly, we're going to look at what what actually is the role of a school nurse. In today's session, we're going to talk about mental health. So I think I should start by having some introductions. My name's Sally-Ann Sutton. I'm the Interim Professional Officer at SAFNA, the School and Public Health Nurses Association. And with me, I've got Tiki, Anne and Craig, who's all the way off in Cyprus. So I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Tiki. I'm a school health nurse and community practice teacher based in Oxfordshire and I work within Oxford City itself. Hi, my name's Anne and I'm the practice educator for Connect for Health in Warwickshire um, and obviously have the um, Scopum background. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Craig Johnson. I'm a specialist community public health nurse and clinical advisor for SAFA within British Forces Cyprus. We're talking about emotional health and well-being, mental health and well-being. And probably a good starting point is to think about what is the role of school nursing in supporting children and young people's emotional health. So let's think about uh, promotion, uh, prevention, uh, protection roles. I think sort of emotional well-being underpins everything, doesn't it? So unless a young person or a child has good emotional well-being, they're going to struggle with everything, all aspects of life. So I would say our input in there is fairly key. Yeah, I agree with that, Tiki. I think it's that early recognition of a young person um, and, you know, sort of particularly having that face-to-face contact with them. I know we struggled with that during the COVID era, but it's those facial keys that you pick up on um, that all indicate that there's a little bit more to that and allows the school nurse to dig a little bit deeper when they're with that young person. So I think it's that early intervention, getting in early, that's key for us as school nurses. We're probably one of the first health professionals that young people are likely to visit independently by themselves. And we want to not just be able to offer them support, but a a positive first contact of health, because we know that positive first contact can lead on to additional positive contacts in the future. So I think we've established that emotional health, supporting children's emotional health, is is a really big area for school nursing. So I just want to take us back a step and think about our role in promotion. Mm. So what we'd like to do as school nurses in our public health role is promote emotional health and well-being so that children thrive so what sort of work do you do? What what interventions in schools or other settings do you offer that um, can help young people to just thrive, to develop emotional intelligence? I think what's key is that schools are mental health friendly. So we're not the only professionals who can actually support young people and children to achieve good emotional and mental health. So Part of the role that I see for us, the specialist community public health nurses, is supporting schools to create those kind of communities where all the staff are informed, all the staff understand and have some basic skills. I know schools get really worried and I understand that because more and more seems to be being piled on them as responsibilities for them to deal with. But actually, I think 
in the long run, it will help schools if all people within that community understand and can support children. I don't know what you think, Anne. I agree. And I think the difficulty that we've come up against post-COVID is that schools are really more driven on the educational element and the young people and children picking back up on the two years that they've lost. So I think a little bit of the emotional element has gone to the side. And it's, it's I guess it's our role to bring that back to the fore, bring that back to school and say to schools, actually, this pupil's struggling with this because... You know, my famous line is, if their emotions not sorted out, they're not readily available to learn. So actually, that can hamper their education. So I think it is going back to schools. Um, You know, we sort of offer drop-ins. We pick up things through the Year 9 H&A. And then obviously, we offer interventions around that. So like group work around anxiety. Um, We offer the one-to-one if we feel that they're a little bit higher than that. Um, And it's just that early intervention that we're trying to get in hopefully to save any issues further down but it's around that tier one work. So first and foremost one of the most fundamental aspects of of our role is is our visibility within the communities uh, we're really fortunate in British Forces Cyprus we have smaller caseloads and within those caseloads we're, we're able to to offer that real direct quality work as well and um, everything we do across our areas bear in mind we're over four different bases across the whole of Cyprus um, every base is slightly different to uh, treat it as a town or, or a city within a local authority. So everything is needs-led and tailored to each community. We utilize a number of tools to, to generate the data from anonymous health and well-being questionnaires to our health assessments to start to generate that information. Going back to that visibility and accessibility within the community, it's it's not uncommon to see us in outside of the school, in our communities, in the youth centres, in the sports clubs, cafes, shops, in the local gym, at the running track. Um, any area, any community area, you're likely to see the school nurse, uh, whether that's in a professional capacity there physically or out within the community as a member of the community as well. And I think that's really important. We offer a secondary school drop-in. We work very closely with our colleagues in CAMS, pulling together all community assets. Uh, I'm very fortunate enough to be in all of our schools pretty frequently, uh, offering teaching sessions, assemblies, lunchtime critical debates, staff training awareness. We also work closely with our our colleagues within school and complete direct work, one-to-one work. Again, everything we do, we make pertinent to our communities and it's all needs-led, utilising those community assets. And that could be anything from the youth services to, to sports leaders, to military leaders, to education welfare officers, to the local medics, information centres, libraries, etc. And again, thinking about the areas that we're in, working with serving families, serving communities, it's about understanding and knowing our communities in each area, uh, knowing when there's there's parental deployments, training potential where there's going to be single parent families, high stress environments. And again, searching for those health needs is key. So we can predict times of greater support as well and pull more resources into those areas and really tailor our services to the community. What I'm hearing is we have a role as public health nurses, if you like, our lead role, our leadership role in supporting schools to create whole school approaches to mental health and well-being. We certainly can't do it on our own, can we? School nurses will often go into schools offering interventions, might be to individuals like you've just said, Anne. Yeah. How about interventions that might happen to 
perhaps classes to year groups within the wider school community things like helping with emotional literacy because so often children and young people don't necessarily have the language to explain how they're how they're feeling so there can be sessions done to schools or assemblies on emotional literacy we can do lessons or assemblies to do with the five ways to well-being um, all sorts of stuff like that but I think what you need to find out as a school nurse is what the school needs what the young people need and then plan your work accordingly in conjunction with what the school is delivering so it's really dovetailed Mm. Um, and and I was just thinking actually when you were speaking about the importance of involving parents because these children spend the majority of their time with their parents and if their parents don't understand maybe how to support them with their emotional health or the parents feel very uncontained themselves then they're not going to be able to contain their children so we have a role there as well I would say. Definitely. And I think one of the key things as well is picking up those young people, especially post-COVID. And I know that we talk about pre-COVID and post-COVID, but that's how we refer to things these days. But actually post-COVID, what we've noticed is there's quite a lot of school avoidance. So how do we then target those young people that don't want to come to school? And there's still a key role for us there about how we engage them, where we engage them, what's the best setting for them, and how can we then support them into making that transition back into school with working with school the young person and their family. So while we're talking about Covid you've mentioned some of the differences that we're seeing pre-Covid and now post-Covid. What else are you noticing about children's emotional health and well-being? You've talked about um, difficulty in some children returning to school. Is there anything else that's is becoming noticeable some of the young people that we're working with it's that social anxiety you know sort of coming back in we notice it took some young people a long time to come back into schools those children from key workers um you know there's in particular one young person that i was working with um that had a diagnosis of autism and handled school really really well when there was a very few number of young people in school their parents was a key worker but when everyone started to come back into school the young person really 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 struggled to manage that and we saw another dip back in Mm. that young person's mental health so I think it's that social anxiety I think that is also a key from COVID. When they first came back in, they were in little bubbles, weren't they? So our, yeah. so the year sevens who are transitioning up, just certainly in, in the school where I was based, just stayed in their classrooms and they didn't move at all. The teachers moved, you know, as they would in primary school, really. So they had different teachers, but the teachers moved and the children didn't. So they then found that transition from this very sort of almost like primary school kind of setting into full-on secondary school setting, really difficult. And, and you're right, there were so many who were struggling with that interaction and the, and the busyness and the jostling yeah. that you get mm. in a school day. And the big thing that we noticed was disordered eating. I don't know whether you found yeah, that. Yeah, exactly Yeah, yeah just a, a massive increase. And it's, yeah. you know, lots and lots of the children do not want to eat in school. They don't want to be seen no. eating in school. And it slowly morphs potentially into something bigger. But that's yeah. that's been a big increase. So we've seen the increase in low mood, mm-hmm. anxiety for whatever reason, and some disordered eating. 
And I agree with that. That's kind of what we've seen. And it's not wanting to eat in front of anyone. Yeah. Um, and that's linked to disordered eating, but also to body image mm. and all of that kind of thing. Because I think as well, a um, lot of young people were doing things on screen, weren't they? They were doing things virtually. And I think we can all agree when you see yourself on the screen, it, you know, you spend a, more time looking at yourself. And I think that's also added to that body image element when we're seeing young people although they don't specifically say it's around covid they link their issues back to the years of covid so although they're not making that direct link they are saying their issues are in those couple of years that we had covid so for me pre and post covid so i came back into school nursing in 2021 um following work with the the ministry of defense uh, prior to that, my previous school nursing career finished, I guess, in 2017. So I, I see a vast number of differences in the communities, not to mention our communities uh, are quite unique and bespoke as well. But one of the, the interesting things I found about the service communities in, in British Forces Cyprus from the anonymous health and wellbeing question is, and just daily contacts, that young people tended to be a little bit more health conscious these days, which is great because we can use that to our advantage uh, during times of health promotion, etc. But it's also good to be able to challenge misconceptions as well and, and, and facilitate discussion with young people because they have access to social media, the internet, free freedom of information is, is, is available. And it's, it's really useful to be able to sometimes engage them in that critical debate so they can o- open up and start to to think about some of the things that they hear and start to critically analyze the information that's around them as well. Um, so I, I see the, the fact that many young people are becoming more health conscious as a positive um, because we can, we can effectively engage them in these conversations as well. Um, again, I found a lot of young people be more vaccine conscious as well, uh, wanted to know more about vaccines, contents of vaccines, what we're having, which is great. Again, I see that as a massive positive. They're taking note of, of health and um things which are important to them so i I only see that as a as a really positive one of the interesting findings over here in british forces cyprus across two of the high schools so to give you a little bit of context um, they are about two hours apart in distance in one high school the sixth form community or i'd say the sort of 16 to 18 year olds on the anonymous health questionnaires, a lot of lots of their data was coming back as they're quite risk averse. But in the other high school, it was quite high t- high risk taking behaviours. Again, we expect young people to take risks and teenagers to take risks. But it was interesting the the contrast across both areas. And I don't know if COVID post COVID had anything to do with that because the lockdowns were very strict. We had to text the number before we left. Uh, you had a, a time slot, and if you know it was. It, it, it was a lot it, it was it was really heavy and living in us in in smaller communities where prevention infection prevention control essentially it's it's around containment we live in a, a little village essentially and we're also an active military base so it's key to keep everyone fit healthy so i'm not sure if that had any sway in the the post-covid behaviors in some of our communities again personally as a school nurse i've seen an increase in in anxiety low mood uh, specific conditions coming through like uh, Tourette's syndrome things like that coming through and also supporting the baby immunizations clinics parents seem to be a little bit more engaged asking more questions about vaccinations which again I only see as a positive we're, we're aging informed consent which I think is brilliant I've seen a higher number of school avoidance post-covid we're very lucky to work very closely with EWO and the schools out here as well 
but that's something that I've, I've noticed out here specifically. I'm not sure if that data mirrors in the UK, but I think going on to what, uh, what Anne was saying before, school avoidance is an issue in some areas. And it's actually very difficult, isn't it, to remember back to before COVID. So, so you can absolutely understand why children and young people are making those connections a lot of school nursing services will have um, single points of access, so parents might be contacting us on behalf of their children, particularly younger children. Are we noticing anything that parents and carers are raising as concerns or worries, particularly that perhaps have ch- may have changed since, since pre-COVID times? I think it does come back to that school avoidance, that mm. support in getting their young people back you know their child back into the school setting they're really struggling you know they've got that anxiety one young person in particular had that separation anxiety of not wanting to leave their mum to make sure that their parents were still home when they came home from school or um, if they had to go into hospital there was this whole big anxiety around are they going to come home again because there was a lot obviously a lot of people that going into hospital couldn't see them and then they didn't come back out so one young person in particular really struggled with mum having to go into hospital and that's something that just in the normal world before covid yeah might happen when we have parents family members that, yeah. that have long-term conditions poorly but happened in such greater numbers didn't yeah. it during covid so you touched on children concerned that parents might not come back out of hospital so you know i'm just thinking about bereavement and you know have you seen an increase or a change in presentations around bereavement related issues with children and young people i've not but i do worry about the longer term impact mm. of that sort of diet that they had mm. that, that emotional food diet that they had during mm. lockdown where households were probably viewing and consuming all that data about yeah. the death rates the hospital you know it must have been really scary because hospitals should be somewhere safe that you mm. go and on the whole you get better but to be mm-hmm. seeing images and you know hearing accounts of hospitals being unable to cope nurses being in tears that you know mm. as adults that was fairly difficult to process but for a child but I've not seen I've mm. not seen the impact of of that but I'm sure we will see that in the years to come when it may be not in our remit as school nurses maybe maybe in when they go on to have children if they choose to you know what will their experiences be of maybe going into hospital for that what will the midwives see you know it must be somewhere logged away inside them mustn't it really yeah I agree with that and I think we we're not really seeing that but I think you know there's a lot of children and young people that I feel that just sit below that CAMS threshold they're just a little bit higher than the work we could do as specialist community public health nurses but they're below the threshold of of CAMS and it's what's out there for them. They've been accepted but the waiting list is so phenomenal and I don't know how you work in in your areas you know Anne and uh, Craig I'm not I'm not quite sure what happens for you guys but you know in our area we hold them mm-hmm. because we're based in the school so we're just constantly seeing these children who actually we've referred you know I saw a child yesterday who was referred in January by the GP yeah and you know she's still self-harming she's still having suicidal thoughts two or three times a week and she needs that specialist help but the pathway she's on is it's going to be at least probably another nine months before she's seen because they're just overwhelmed you talked about the scenes in hospitals and that was just running through my head 
Uh, and the fact that our children and young people weren't just exposed to news looping round of what was happening in the UK, but actually some some scenes that you could argue were, could be very traumatising to adults. You mentioned what it was like for us to watch them. So we're talking about children that have been exposed to trauma that Anne, you talked about, are creeping above that threshold to which yeah. school nurses can offer support. So I guess that moves us on to the, the challenges that we're facing. So having to hold children and young people on our caseloads and support them as best we can because of waiting times in specialist services. Do you want to say a bit more about how that might be impacting on the children and young people themselves, but also you as school nurses, how, how are you coping with that? For the children and young people, there's that real sense within them that I'm not bad enough to get the urgent care. They might get an urgent assessment, but then because they're maybe not actively suicidal, mm. they then go onto the waiting list. And with eating disorders, you know, I'm not bad enough. So the only way to be seen is to be bad enough yeah. and that's that's a dreadful message to be mm. to be sending almost isn't it that despite the fact that you're in so much distress and we're acknowledging you're in so much distress you can't access the services who are specialists and are trained and are hopefully going to be able to help you improve more than we can mm. as school nurses I know that they're obviously looking at that and they're putting funding in to try and support that, but it's how long is that going to take to embed, get back through the, the waiting list? And, you know, I agree with you, Tiki. I think it's that important message to children and young people that mm. because when they're in crisis, they're in crisis at that point. Mm. And then, you know, it's sort of 12 months down the line and they're thinking, well, I don't have that same issue anymore. So why am I here? And for us, I think it leaves us having to give them the skills to be able to manage their situations in that present time, given those strategies. We do a three, well, it's four weeks now, worthless worries. And we're not saying that their worries are worthless. What we're saying is, is sometimes we worry about things that we can't control and actually sometimes we have to let that go and I think as specialist community public health nurses sometimes we have to let that go we can't hold all the worry because you know we just won't be able to do our jobs effectively but it does leave it sitting with you about mm. particular young people about them getting that right support mm. at that right time and I think it's the right support at the right time that's key. In, in specialist mental health services, they have robust models of supervision that we perhaps don't see out in community nursing, you know, school nursing. So you're saying, yes, you have to let, let it go. And, and as nurses, we have to let things go. We have to realise where our boundaries are, what yeah. we can cope with. Is there anything that can be done to support school nurses? Do you... Do you get access to adequate supervision to help you talk through children, young people that you support in the challenges that you're facing? Or are the gaps there? I think it probably varies depending mm. on where you are. I'm very fortunate where I am. We meet weekly as small teams. It's an ongoing theme of you supporting this young, you know, supporting mm. this young person and I'm really worried about what I can do because I don't know what else I can do. And then we get monthly CAMS supervision. Um, and that is invaluable because when you've run out of things that you think you can do, they give you the 
specific tools and the specific techniques so that you can actually carry on supporting that young person so you don't feel like you've I mean when I say just listening you can't see me I'm doing air quotes just listening (laughs) because actually I think that is such an invaluable part of our role and really supports an awful lot of young people with their emotional well-being (laughs) but there are many children and young people who need more than that and you know when you run out of those extra little skills that you might have picked up throughout your career having cam supervision so they can really give you some specific techniques that you can work uh, with a young person I mean I had a young person I was working with who was school avoidant uh, massively school avoidant and, and really really anxious about it and I had run out of techniques he's on a waiting list I had run out of techniques and the cam supervisor really gave me some really clear guidance and I was able to use that with him and actually it it made a difference it felt really helpful. So here in BFC we're fortunate enough to have um, good access to our cams colleagues and services available Um, I'm actually based in the same building as our GPs, social workers, CAMS practitioners. We have a children's community nurse, speech and language. So that's always really useful for sharing information. Um, To put it into context, though, we have to remember our communities are very small communities. um, And we don't, our families don't have, uh, I suppose, the luxury, is is that the right word? The luxury of having that extended family because they're on a military base. Um, So community here is key and the services and those community assets are essential. In a previous life in school nurse, and we also had access to, when I was in Sefton, we had access to a emotional health and wellbeing nurse, again, where we could access supervision for, for the emotional health and wellbeing nurse, which was always great. Because as Tiki said before, when, when, when you feel like you're running out of ideas or you've done the most of your capacity, it's what next? Who, who's giving you that information to... Um, to reaffirm that you're doing the right thing or what you need to do next. Here in British Forces Cyprus, we also have family and children in need supervision. Again, that incorporates uh, the wider multidisciplinary group supervision part of the team. And we also have multi-multidisciplinary meetings with our GPs, CAMs, health visitors, children's, children's community nurses to support our families who might have greater need. So what's your experience um, in the area? Because we've you know already acknowledged it's variable we're very lucky in Warwickshire we have quite a robust um supervision schedule sort of safeguarding um clinical managerial we have that the ad hoc so it's an open door so right from the service manager down if if a a practitioner's got um a concern or a worry or they just want to bounce things through um we offer that open door policy and everyone's able to have that access to that so that's really good Unfortunately, we don't have that CAM supervision, which is quite interesting to hear you say Mm -hmm. that. But we do have um, on-call clinicians at our local CAM service that we can call up and say, anonymously, we've got this issue. How would you best guide us? What would you say your advice would be to that, whether that's a referral in or could we do this or could we do that? So we do have that, but we don't have that regular monthly CAM supervision Mm. which um, it's quite interesting to hear you say Mm. that. I took a call yesterday from an ex-colleague of mine who's been working in the independent school nursing sector for some time and it was quite interesting because she was saying who can I go to to get an urgent mental health assessment she said I don't actually know what my roots in are for this this young person who's come back to school who's lost loads and loads of weight and is 
paranoid and uh, and is feeling suicidal. So actually she went through the GP because she contacted me and it was gone five. And I said, well, you can't ring and get the, uh, the urgent advice from CAMS now because it's closed and it's five. But she went through the GP. So I think for those of us who are in NHS trust, we're possibly in a much better place in terms of supervision and support for mm-hmm. managing um, children with mental health crises or emotional health needs than maybe those colleagues who are out in the independent sector. And I guess one of the good things about podcasts, one of the aims of the podcast is to be able to share different models, different ways of working, different good practice. So people can go away and reflect on that and think about it. And Anne said how interesting the CAMS mm. model of supervision was that Tiki has. Um, and perhaps that's something that other school nurses can go away and think about and there can be discussions at you know provide a level to how we can better support school nurses to to hold these children and young people so i'm thinking about we've talked about the waiting list in cams we're talking about how school nurses can support children very well but there's times when they need more specialist mental health support Are there virtual services out there that children can use within the mod they have um They've bought into Couth, again, an online platform which young people can create a login for as well and discuss, you know, there's, there's chat rooms there, discussion boards, articles, which is really useful. Um, I tend to signpost to Couth, Young Minds, Health for Kids, Health for Teens, The Mix, um, but also ensure that I, that I do have the, that regular contact with the schools. We have QR codes up in corridors, toilets, anywhere you can think on the floor, underneath the diet, you know, the in the in the lunch rooms on the floor, and uh, because if a young person is looking at the phone, they're more likely to see the floor than the wall. Um, again, one thing I have in in my drop-in room. Again, I'm fortunate enough to have a drop-in room. I'm conscious of that. Is I have a signposting wall, and in one section it's tips for a friend, in another section it's what's worked well for you, in one section it's useful websites. And, and useful apps in the other section and we tend to do a place one take one scheme so when a young person comes in I get them to sort of look at the, the signposting wall and say is there anything on there that you think might might help you or can you contribute to the wall so if you're taking one can you contribute it for the next person and that, that seems to work quite well and I feel that empowers young people to start thinking about some of the choices that they make and how to uh, improve their own health literacy as well which I wish is which is a great thing and again not just targeting the schools targeting the areas where, where our young people where our teenagers will hang out where they'll congregate you know whether that's in you know outside the cafes the gyms the track the youth clubs the sports clubs you know knowing your areas where young people will be again I'm not averse to you know to turn up to these areas and just generating and engaging with young people and generating in debates it's one of my favorite things to do especially in the school is is that, that that break time critical debate it's a 15 minute break time i'll have a question on a whiteboard or on, on my laptop and i'll sit down in a busy area and young people will naturally just start to come to you and to see well what, what you're doing sat here today craig what have you got for us today and i'll have a question on there and we'll start to engage in, in a debate around it could be anything from a topic around mental health sexual health but then we're starting to get young people talking about these topics and we're, we're debunking myths and we're also giving them a platform to be a young person as well a young adult someone who's who's learning that health empowerment 
So I think that's really important. I always signpost them to Childline. As I say, you know, it's not just for little children mm. and you can engage with them online. It's not actually having to ring. We're the same. We've got Chat Health, which is our texting service. Um, when we go out and see children and young people, when we do the Year 9 h and we've got a website list that we give to them and it's got a whole array of um, support for them. There's a lot of um, support around eating, bereavement, mental health, gender... And we've just got this whole website list that we offer out to children and young people. That sounds really, really good. And they're all approved websites and apps. And I think sometimes it can be that first step um, to young people gaining confidence, isn't it, to go in virtually. It's something they're very familiar with, they've grown up with. And perhaps if they can get engaged through digital means, that might be the next step to getting some face-to-face type support. Mm. Part of their role is to improve young people's mental health literacy, isn't it? Mm. So actually getting them to um, be able to access reputable sites, because that's a really important point that you made, Anne, isn't it? That reputable sites, thinking around health health for kids and health for teens, that we know that any of the links from those are, to again, to reputable national mental health sites such Mm. as Young Minds so that's really important isn't it? I look after the um, specialist community public health nurse students in our area Mm. um, and we've been doing some work with the um, GRT the Gypsy Roma Traveller community in how we can engage them and we can look after their sort of how and you know it's come to light that um, self-harm is quite a high prevalence in that um, community and it's about how we can engage them to sort of get their trust and work with them so that's the project that my students going to be working on is we've got the information so now as my service manager would say the so what what are we going to do with the information we've got and how can we support them? So it's not always those young people that are in school, it's those that are not visible. And that's important, these seldom heard voices. Excellent. And, yeah. and we, we touched on that, I suppose, for a very focused number of children, those children that are not returning to school post-COVID. But we haven't talked about other groups of children. Young carers springs to mind, children who are in care. So I don't know what your experiences are with those groups of children and young people. So in, in relation to um, underserved groups, I suppose service families don't really fall under any of those categories, although it's it's important to, to note that, that service communities, service children and young people will have very unique experiences and one of those unique experiences is the fact that one or both of their parents at times may may de- be deployed in areas where there's war, training, things like that, very stressful environments. And during those times, our, our young people may step up into more caring responsibilities and roles. Um, so I think there's probably more young carers than, than we probably acknowledge. Um, there are different factors to that I, within the community and how the community works as that extended family as well. But... I'd be remiss without mentioning those specific unique factors for our service children and young people. I think we have lots of groups of sort of, don't want to use the term marginalised populations, mm. but, you know, within our schools mm. and within within young people. For me, our children who are looked after, they're disadvantaged from the get-go, aren't they? But actually, the level of support that they get is then possibly better mm. than another child within the school let's say because you know we know about them we know the history we know the trauma they've experienced the school understand 
they have regular contact with someone who's got their back 100%, you know, through their social worker. They have access to mental health support faster than another child might do. They have the regular opportunity, you know, once a year, we do the health needs assessments with them um, to touch base with someone and hopefully grow that trusting relationship. So I haven't seen a massive difference in our looked after children. Um, but something you were saying then um, about, you know, your Gypsy um, Romney Traveller communities um, made me think about when we break down the demographics of the children that we see in schools predominant with mental health, predominantly it's, it's, it's our white British children who are coming and seeking help. That's something I feel really strongly we should be trying to tackle. And I... I don't quite know how to tackle that because I know it's not just our white British children who are struggling with their mental health, but there's something about accessibility. There's something about the fact that certainly within our Oxfordshire population of school nurses, we're very white, our school nurses. You know, that is it because, uh, you know, these children don't see themselves reflected within mm -hmm. those key people to come and talk to? That means they're not accessing us. Is it the culture that means... It's not something you talk about. It's not something you acknowledge. I don't know. I don't know what your experience is in terms of children accessing help. And Oxfordshire's not just white middle class. It is actually very, you know, we have areas that are very diverse communities um, and culturally very diverse and affluence very diverse as well. Yeah, and that's the same for our area. And I think we see a, an array of um young people across all all of um the ethnic minorities yeah, so yeah. i think we do when you're working with a young person from an ethnic minority it's almost like they need that permission to talk about how they're feeling mm. so sometimes i think they hold back for a little bit longer um and we you just have to work with them a little bit more mm. just to gain their trust and get that information mm. out from them um and another big piece of work that i've been involved in is around the um refugees mm. and the mental health and and the trauma and it's a real high trauma that they've seen as well but obviously um you know there's quite high proportions going into uh, secondary schools in our area and the primary schools and the long-term impact that's going to have mm. in terms of that mental health support for them as well yeah. um, and that language barrier and the use of an interpreter i think is always quite difficult when you're trying to have quite an intense conversation yeah. with a young person or the family and then you've you're relying on an interpreter to convey that back to you but to convey it with how you're expressing it your tone mm. when i think as especially as community public health nurses when you're talking with a young person you adapt your tone don't you mm. to what they're telling you in the situation and and that sort of empathy um and i'm not always quite sure that comes over well with an interpreter there's got to be a challenge hasn't it relaying yeah. information through through a, a third party mm. within our areas within british forces cyprus and other serving british forces areas with our serving commonwealth communities we have a lot lots of um serving people children young people where english isn't the first language if i'm being critical of myself actually when when i think to drop in contacts 
I tend to see more white British young people being sort of critical on myself. It's it's about thinking, well, how can I better engage with all of our communities as well? Is it around that identifying or having that option to see somebody else or maybe differences within the culture? So I guess, you know, we're identifying groups of children, young people that might find it difficult for a variety of reasons to access services. And I'm just wondering in terms of our public health role, is that where uh, expertise and uh, reach as public health nurses works in terms of how we work with communities, groups, how we work with faith groups, so we can get uh, health promotion messages across mm-hmm. to those children, young people, those families of parents where they might not want to or feel able to access their services. So you, you started to talk about how you're working with asylum seekers, refugees. Mm-hmm. Have you got any examples of how you might work with community groups, faith groups, in the early help settings even, again, as part of that wider community? We've got um, an outreach development group um one's the grt and one's for the home educated and we're just sort of now sort of working about how we can work out in the community you know that community-based asset sort of you know is the homes always the right environment is the school always the right environment is there somewhere where the families and children and young people feel more comfortable to come and have that conversation with us so it's just kind of that sort of reaching out and how do we do that and thinking out of the box and it not always being the same way that we've always done it. And I suppose that's how we're moving now um, with place-based and population-based working. We very much haven't we got to do it in partnership with other services, but with in partnership with communities and using strength-based yeah. approaches. During the podcast, we've been talking about how, how do we as school nurses identify young people who are really struggling with their, their mental health compared to those that, that are, are sad, you know, and, and quite rightfully so, something tricky's happened in their life and they're sad versus those that actually might be starting to experience, you know, clinical levels of anxiety and depression. And, and that's not for us to diagnose, is it, as school nurses, but we need to recognise that. Mm. It's helpful if we listen to a, a clip, one of the audio clips from the Health for Teens um, webpage, where we, we listen to what young people have got to say about their feelings on the topic of depression, sadness. So we'll just listen to that clip. Health for Teens. Health Uncovered. Do you think that lots of young people experience depression? It is very difficult to tell. Um, Obviously, not even just depression, a lot of key factors and stuff. uh, And most illnesses that are like mentally caused are really hard to spot. Um, I've knew someone who's had anxiety, but I did not know until they actually like told me. You can never know what's going on inside someone's head, because even if they say they're fine, they might not actually be fine. So it's kind of like a mask like, that you put on, like, yeah, I'm fine. And that people take that as its face value and then they don't look into it more, which is why it's, I think it's quite hard to spot. I think mental illness and depression, anxiety, all of those have become a lot more common. Society is becoming a lot more accepting. So I think they're almost shying away from people that have that and they don't notice it as much because it is so normal now for teenagers to go through things like this. Health for teens. Health uncovered. I think for me, I feel that last sentence from that young person that mental health has become the norm and therefore it's socially accepted. And that's quite sad to hear that that's how young people define mental health and it's 
socially normal. And I don't know whether there is genuinely more mental health concerns, there are generally more mental health concerns than there used to be, or whether it's just that young people and children are better informed about them and feel able to come and access support. I I genuinely don't know what it is. I do find it quite concerning when a young person comes to me and can quote the DSM and has Mm. done their own diagnosis from the DSM, you know, and and I think the access to technology to to be able to access all these resources is invaluable in some ways, but it's also potentially a bit dangerous, you know, when they come and they say, I think I've got, and they list this, this, this disorder that I've never heard of. And it's, oh, well, it's in the DSM and it's because I've got this, this, this and Mm. this. And I think that at times can't be that helpful for their own emotional well-being. No, I agree. And I think it's the, you know, my famous line is, please don't Google. Stay away from Google um, because they do. But, you know, I just think that for us, as um, especially as community public health nurses, we're in quite a pivotal role to be that. Um, proactive rather than be reactive and I think resources time services out there are just kind of leaving us like firefighting and we are being reactive to what's coming into the service and it's having that space and time to be that more proactive and I know that we do the year nine um, health needs assessment questionnaire and we can and we've picked up quite a lot of valuable work from that and I know that one young person in particular that I went to see just after we came out of lockdown following his questionnaire and um, I was so glad that I'd been able to see him face to face because it was a split second look on his face that I caught and it led us down a different conversation so his anxiety and his upset was coming from he wanted to see his dad his mom didn't want him to see his dad but he didn't know how to tell his mom Mm. he wanted to see his dad so I was able to help facilitate that conversation he got to see his dad and that was just the root cause so I think sometimes it's getting down to that and that's where I was going getting down to that root cause Mm -hmm. of what it is for that young person and bottoming that out and then finding the right support for them and of course in instances like that what that young person is experiencing is a normal reaction to a really tough life situation yeah not having a diagnosable mental health problem Yeah. yeah yeah we absolutely understand don't we if if you hadn't intervened at that point, if he hadn't been able mm. to speak to somebody, his anxiety could have progressed, couldn't it, and become mm. yeah. um, more clinical in nature. But you, you're right, it's having opportunities to open out that conversation. That young person that came to you having looked at diagnostic criteria in, in mm. you know, the, the DSM, I guess that led you to have a much wider conversation about him understanding or her understanding their emotional health and well-being yeah. and perhaps led to a different way of framing things and a different way of thinking for that young person. Yeah, and I think just listening to you, Anne, you know, you say it came from that year nine health review and, and you know, and I, I just listened to him and it was a split second and I caught his, I, I caught, you know, I caught that reaction on his face. And we often underplay and undersell our skills, don't we? Because actually, you know, someone listening in could just think, oh, you just happen to be in the right place. But no, it'll be from your questioning. It'll be from, we're so highly skilled, aren't we? At being able to read 
children and young people read people and be able to communicate yeah. and pick up on those so we you know we have the chance to get in as you say early and nip things in a bud and maybe change the trajectory slightly for young people and i think the fundamental thing here goes back to our ability to engage with children and young people our ability to be the link between health and education i think that's so important and giving young people a positive first experience of, of accessing a health professional. We talk quite a lot in our service about that professional curiosity. Yeah. Don't just take it at face value. And that's with children, young people and their families, you know, the adults around them. It's that professional curiosity and just going a little bit deeper and asking those questions. And that's definitely something that we look to bring out in supervision. So if we're with a practitioner, we'll say, okay, so so what would, what would you do in that situation? And it's that so what all the time, isn't it? It is, and it's just made me think about in the area that um, I'm still working in the, the NHS, we, we've had the chat health text lines for ages, and we go in as part of year seven assemblies they're start, you know, starting to become independent we want them to be independently accessing health and we talk about well you know they can contact a school nurse face to face but actually you can text us and we, we always say to the new school nurses don't be surprised if you get messages now for, from young people that might seem quite random or perhaps they're testing us and but actually don't let those go reply to them start to open up a conversation and actually we've had ones where messages come through and that young person is clearly testing is this a safe place mm-hmm. but that professional has used their professional curiosity their professional picking up on cues mm-hmm. and started a conversation that, that's led to something very meaningful and that young person has, didn't come to us to get support or didn't didn't directly come to us asking for support but wanted something so it's important mm. to make sure we, we use all means isn't it their eyes when we're face to face yeah this uh, but also picking up on that digital mm. stuff that we now have had to develop the skills to mm. manage that is key isn't it and mm. it's you know sometimes when you're sat on chat health which we do and you're thinking in my head, I'll be like, what would I say if this young person was in front of me? And I try and have that conversation with that in, in my head. And I always um, go back to um, some training when we had chat health from Clay Frake, who would mm. say, they've reached out to you for a reason. Mm. They're reaching out because they want that support. You know, don't be afraid to ask those difficult questions. You know, if it's an expression of suicidal ideation, explore that with them. What's their plan? Have they carried out any of that mm. plan? And sometimes it's like, we don't know to ask that question because we don't want to put that thought in their head. But actually we need to ask those questions yes. mm. because that's when you're ascertaining how safe that young person is mm. in that moment in time. Mm. Who have they got around them? Mm. and that's key isn't it so it's using all of your skills that you would do if a young person was face to face with you just through a mm. technology and I think we have learned haven't we how yeah. to convey empathy um, you know and connect with that young person through text yeah. conversations yeah. Or, or other virtual yeah. means mm. so we're coming to the end of the, the, the podcast we're coming to the end of the time but we could carry on for another hour <laughs> Are there any sort of last messages that you might want to give to the school nurses out there listening to this or any summary points you want to put out there? For me, I suppose it's the importance of listening and not to undervalue what you can achieve by giving that young person an ear 
than someone who is properly actively listening because it might be the first time that's happened in their life I agree with that it's that listening and giving them the platform and the time Mm. and I think for me I would be quite happy to start at worst case scenario and work myself back than not give that young person that time so you know the young person saying something for a reason and actually if what they're saying doesn't marry up with reality but actually where's that coming from Mm. why are they saying that and that digging deeper and bottom out a little bit more with them as school nurses we have the the skills and tools to support and empower young people to successful healthy happy lives but for me again and and i know i bang on about it it's it's about the visibility and accessibility of the school nurse of the service if if young people don't know where we are who we are when they can see us how can they access our services so for me the emphasis will always be on that visibility and accessibility in the communities and visibility and accessibility isn't just being physically present in a school again it can come in a multitude of ways it can come online face to face we have to think of place-based care as well so when I talk about being visible and accessible, I'm thinking of using all of our avenues to be visible and accessible. And as practitioners, I think we are experts at thinking outside the box. Thank you for spending time with me. And you can get in touch with us at SAFNA. Um, we're always happy to listen to good practice, share experiences, think about things that we can do um, to better school nursing. So thank you for listening. That was School Nursing Uncovered. Please listen out for more conversations in this podcast series, which cover mental health, gender identity, safeguarding and more. And remember to follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss the upcoming episodes.